Hi, welcome to History's Great Speeches. I'm Charles Featherston, voice artist, narrator and compiler of the series. Please like or subscribe and feel free to contact me via Bandcamp, Podbean, Facebook or Patreon to let me know speeches or time periods you'd like to see covered. You can find a full set of links at my website, charlesfeatherston.uk. William Morris, Art and Socialism, 1884, Part 1 My friends, I want you to look into the relations of art to commerce, using the latter word to express what is generally meant by it. Namely, that system of competition in the market, which is indeed the only form which most people nowadays suppose that commerce can take. Now, whereas there have been times in the world's history when art held the supremacy over commerce, when art was a good deal and commerce, as we understand the word, was a very little, so now, on the contrary, it will be admitted by all, I fancy, that commerce has become of very great importance and art of very little. I say this will be generally admitted, but different persons will hold very different opinions, not only as to whether this is well or ill, but even as to what it really means when we say that commerce has become of supreme importance and that art has sunk into an unimportant matter. Allow me to give you my opinion of the meaning of it, which will lead me on to ask you to consider what remedies should be applied for curing the evils that exist in the relations between art and commerce. Now, to speak plainly, it seems to me that the supremacy of commerce, as we understand the word, is an evil, but a very serious one. And I should call it an unmixed evil. But for the strange continuity of life which runs through all historical events, and by means of which the very evils of such and such a period tend to abolish themselves. For, to my mind, it means this, that the world of modern civilization, in its haste to gain a very inequitably divided material prosperity has entirely suppressed popular art, or, in other words, that the greater part of the people have no share in art, which, as things now are, must be kept in the hands of a few rich or well-to-do people who, we may fairly say, need it less and not more than the laborious workers. Nor is that all the evil, nor the worst of it, for the cause of this famine of art is that whilst people work throughout the civilised world as laboriously as ever they did, they have lost, in losing an art which was done by and for the people, the natural solace of that labour, a solace which they once had, and always should have, the opportunity of expressing their own thoughts to their fellows by means of that very labour, by means of that daily work which nature or long custom, a second nature, does indeed require of them, but without meaning that it should be an unrewarded and repulsive burden. But through a strange blindness, an error in the civilization in these latter days, the world's work, almost all of it, the work some share of which should have been the helpful companion of every man, has become even such a burden which every man, if he could, would shake off. I have said that people work no less laboriously than they ever did, but I should have said that they work more laboriously. The wonderful machines which in the hands of just and foreseeing men would have been used to minimise repulsive labour and to give pleasure, or in other words added life, to the human race, have been so used on the contrary that they have driven all men into mere frantic haste and hurry, thereby destroying pleasure, that is life, on all hands. They have, instead of lightening the labour of the workmen, intensified it, and thereby added more weariness yet to the burden which the poor have to carry. Nor can it be pleaded for the system of modern civilization that the mere material or bodily gains of it, 
balance the loss of pleasure which it has brought upon the world. For, as I hinted before, those gains have been so unfairly divided that the contrast between rich and poor has been fearfully intensified, so that in all civilised countries, but most of all in England, the terrible spectacle is exhibited of two peoples living street by street and door by door, people of the same blood, the same tongue, and at least nominally living under the same laws, but yet one civilised and the other uncivilised. All this, I say, is the result of the system that has trampled down art and exalted commerce into a sacred religion, and it would seem is ready, with the ghastly stupidity which is its principal characteristic, to mock the Roman satirist for his noble warning by taking it in inverse meaning, and now bids us all, for the sake of life, to destroy the reasons for living. And now, in the teeth of this stupid tyranny, I put forward a claim on behalf of labour enslaved by commerce, which I know no thinking man can deny is reasonable, but which, if acted on, would involve such a change as would defeat commerce. That is, would put association instead of competition, social order instead of individualist anarchy. Yet I have looked at this claim by the light of history and my own conscience, and it seems to me so looked at to be a most just claim, and that resistance to it means nothing short of a denial of the hope of civilization. This, then, is the claim. It is right and necessary that all men should have work to do which shall be worth doing, and be of itself pleasant to do, and which should be done under such conditions as would make it neither over-wearisome nor over-anxious. Turn that claim about as I may, think of it as long as I can, I cannot find that it is an exorbitant claim. Yet again, I say, if society would or could admit it, the face of the world would be changed. Discontent and strife and dishonesty would be ended. To feel that we were doing work useful to others and pleasant to ourselves, and that such work and its due reward could not fail us. What serious harm could happen to us then? And the price to be paid for so making the world happy is revolution, socialism instead of laissez-faire. How can we of the middle classes help to bring such a state of things about, a state of things as nearly as possible the reverse of the present state of things? The reverse, no less than that. For first, the work must be worth doing. Think what a change that would make in the world. I tell you, I feel dazed at the thought of the immensity of work which is undergone for the making of useless things. It would be an instructive day's work for any of us who is strong enough to walk through two or three of the principal streets of London on a weekday, and take accurate note of everything in the shop windows which is embarrassing or superfluous to the daily life of a serious man. Nay, the most of these things no one, serious or unserious, wants at all. Only a foolish habit makes even the lightest-minded of us suppose that he wants them, and to many people, even of those who buy them, they are obvious encumbrances to real work, thought, and pleasure. But I beg you to think of the enormous mass of men who are occupied with this miserable trumpery, from the engineers who have had to make the machines for making them, down to the hapless clerks who sit day long, year after year, in the horrible dens wherein the wholesale exchange of them is transacted, and the shopmen, who not daring to call their souls their own, retail them amidst numberless insults which they must not resent, to the idle public which doesn't want them, but buys them to be bored by them and sick to death of them. I am talking of the merely useless things, 
But there are other matters not merely useless, but actively destructive and poisonous, which command a good price in the market. For instance, adulterated food and drink. Vast is the number of slaves whom competitive commerce employs in turning out infamies such as these. But quite apart from them, there is an enormous mass of labour which is just merely wasted. Many thousands of men and women making nothing with terrible and inhuman toil which deadens the soul and shortens mere animal life itself. All these are the slaves of what is called luxury, which in the modern sense of the word comprises a mass of sham wealth, the invention of competitive commerce, and enslaves not only the poor people who are compelled to work at its production, but also the foolish and not over-happy people who buy it to harass themselves with its encumbrance. Now, if we are to have popular art, or indeed art of any kind, we must at once and for all be done with this luxury. It is the supplanter, the changeling of art. So much so that by those who know of nothing better, it has even been taken for art, the divine solace of human labour, the romance of each day's hard practice of the difficult art of living. But I say art cannot live beside it, nor self-respect in any class of life. Effeminacy and brutality are its companions on the right hand and the left. This, first of all, we of the well-to-do classes must get rid of if we are serious in desiring the new birth of art. And if not, then corruption is digging a terrible pit of perdition for society, from which indeed the new birth may come, but surely from a midst of terror, violence and misery. Indeed, if it were but ridding ourselves, the well-to-do people, of this mountain of rubbish, that would be something worth doing. Things which everybody knows are of no use. The very capitalists know well that there is no genuine healthy demand for them, and they are compelled to foist them off on the public by stirring up a strange, feverish desire for petty excitement, the outward token of which is known by the conventional name of fashion. A strange monster, born of the vacancy of the lives of rich people and the eagerness of competitive commerce to make the most of the huge crowd of workmen whom it breeds as unregarded instruments for what is called the making of money. Do not think it a little matter to resist this monster of folly. To think for yourselves what you yourselves really desire will not only make men and women of you so far, but may also set you thinking of the due desires of other people, since you will soon find, when you get to know a work of art, that slavish work is undesirable. And here, furthermore, is at least a little sign whereby to distinguish between a rag of fashion and a work of art. Whereas the toys of fashion, when the first gloss is worn off them, do become obviously worthless even to the frivolous. A work of art, be it ever so humble, is long-lived, we never tire of it. As long as the scrap hangs together, it is valuable and instructive to each new generation. All works of art, in short, have the property of becoming venerable amidst decay, and reason good, for from the first there was a soul in them, the thought of man, which will be visible in them so long as the body exists in which they were implanted. And that last sentence brings me to considering the other side of the necessity for labour only occupying itself in making goods that are worth making. Hitherto, we have been thinking of it only from the user's point of view. Even so looked at, it was surely important enough. Yet from the other side, as to the producer, it is far more important still. For I say again that in buying these things, tis the lives of men you buy. 
will you, from mere folly and thoughtlessness, make yourselves partakers of the guilt of those who compel their fellow men to labour uselessly? For when I said it was necessary for all things made to be worth making, I set up that claim chiefly on benefit of labour, since the waste of making useless things grieves the workman doubly. As part of the public he is forced into buying them, and the more part of his miserable wages are squeezed out of him by a universal kind of truck system. As one of the producers, he is forced into making them, and so into losing the very foundations of that pleasure in daily work which I claim as his birthright. He is compelled to labour joylessly at making the poison which the truck system compels him to buy, so that the huge mass of men who are compelled by folly and greed to make harmful and useless things are sacrificed to society. I say that this would be terrible and unendurable, even though they were sacrificed to the good of society, if that were possible. But if they are sacrificed not for the welfare of society but for its whims, to add to its degradation, what do luxury and fashion look like then? On one side, ruinous and wearisome waste, leading through corruption to corruption, on to complete cynicism at last, and the disintegration of all society. And on the other side, implacable oppression destructive of all pleasure and hope in life, and leading whitherward. Here, then, is one thing for us of the middle classes to do before we can clear the ground for the new birth of art, before we can clear our own consciences of the guilt of enslaving men by their labour. One thing. And if we could do it, perhaps that one thing would be enough, and all other healthy changes would follow it. But can we do it? Can we escape from the corruption of society which threatens us? Can the middle classes regenerate themselves? At first sight, one would say that a body of people so powerful, who have built up the gigantic edifice of modern commerce, whose science, invention and energy have subdued the forces of nature to serve their everyday purposes, and who guide the organisation that keeps these natural powers in subjection in a way almost miraculous. At first sight, one would say surely such a mighty mass of wealthy men could do anything they please. And yet I doubt it. Their own creation, the commerce they are so proud of, has become their master. And all we of the well-to-do classes, some of us with triumphant glee, some with dull satisfaction, and some with sadness of heart, are compelled to admit not that commerce was made for man, but that man was made for commerce. On all sides we are forced to admit it. There are of the English middle class today, for instance, men of the highest aspirations towards art and of the strongest will, men who are most deeply convinced of the necessity to civilization of surrounding men's lives with beauty, and many lesser men, thousands for what I know, refined and cultivated, follow them and praise their opinions. But both the leaders and the led are incapable of saving so much as half a dozen commons from the grasp of inexorable commerce. They are as helpless in spite of their culture and their genius as if they were just so many overworked shoemakers. Less lucky than King Midas are green fields and clear waters, nay the very air we breathe are turned not to gold, which might please some of us for an hour maybe, but to dirt. And to speak plainly, we know full well that under the present gospel of capital, not only there is no hope of bettering it, but that things grow worse year by year, day by day. Let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die, choked by filth. Or let me give you a direct example of the slavery to competitive commerce in which we hapless folk of the middle classes live. 
I have exhorted you to the putting away of luxury, to the stripping yourselves of useless encumbrances, to the simplification of life, and I believe that there are not a few of you that heartily agree with me on that point. Well, I have long thought that one of the most revolting circumstances that cling to our present class system is the relation between us, of the well-to-do, and our domestic servants. We and our servants live together under one roof, but are little better than strangers to each other, in spite of the good nature and good feeling that often exists on both sides. Nay, strangers is a mild word. Though we are of the same blood, bound by the same laws, we live together like people of different tribes. Now, think how this works on the job of getting through the ordinary day's work of a household, and whether our lives can be simplified while such a system lasts. To go no further, you who are housekeepers know full well, as I myself do since I have learned the useful art of cooking a dinner, how it would simplify the day's work if the chief meals could be eaten in common, if there had not got to be double meals, one upstairs and another downstairs. And again, surely we of this educational century cannot be ignorant of what an education it would be for the less refined members of a household to meet on common easy terms the more refined once a day at least to note the elegant manners of well-bred ladies, to give and take in talk with learned and travelled men, with men of action and imagination. Believe me, that would beat elementary education. Furthermore, this matter cleaves close to our subject of art. For note, as a token of this stupidity of our sham civilization, what foolish rabbit warrens our well-to-do houses are obliged to be. Instead of being planned in the rational ancient way which was used from the time of Homer to past the time of Chaucer, a big hall to wit with a few chambers tacked onto it for sleeping or sulking in. No wonder our houses are cramped and ignoble when the lives lived in them are cramped and ignoble also. Well, and why don't we who have thought of this, as I am sure many of us have, change this mean and shabby custom, simplifying our lives thereby and educating our friends, to whose toil we owe so many comforts? Why do not you, and I, set about doing this tomorrow? Because we cannot, because our servants wouldn't have it, knowing, as we know, that both parties would be made miserable by it. The civilization of the 19th century forbids us to share the refinement of a household among its members. So, you see, if we middle-class people belong to a powerful folk, and in good sooth we do, we are but playing a part played in many a tale of the world's history. We are great but hapless. We are important, dignified people, but bored to death. We have bought our power at price of our liberty and our pleasure. So I say in answer to the question, can we put luxury from us and live simple and decent lives? Yes, when we are free from the slavery of capitalist commerce, but not before. Surely there are some of you who long to be free, who have been educated and refined, and had your perceptions of beauty and order quickened, only that they might be shocked and wounded at every turn by the brutalities of competitive commerce, who have been so hunted and driven by it that, though you are well-to-do, rich even maybe, you have now nothing to lose from social revolution. Love of art, that is to say, of the true pleasure of life, has brought you to this, that you must throw in your lot with that of the wage-slave of competitive commerce. You and he must help each other and have one hope in common, or you at any rate will live and die hopeless and unhelped. 
You, who long to be set free from the oppression of the money-grubbers, hope for the day when you will be compelled to be free. Meanwhile, if otherwise that oppression has left scarce any work to do worth doing, one thing at least is left us to strive for, the raising of the standard of life where it is lowest, where it is low. That will put a spoke in the wheel of the triumphant car of competitive commerce. Nor can I conceive of anything more likely to raise the standard of life than the convincing some thousands of those who live by labour of the necessity of their supporting the second part of the claim I have made for labour, namely, that their work should be of itself pleasant to do. If we could but convince them that such a strange revolution in labour as this would be of infinite benefit not to them only, but to all men, and that it is so right and natural that for the reverse to be the case that most men's work should be grievous to them is a mere monstrosity of these latter days, which must in the long run bring ruin and confusion on the society that allows it. If we could but convince them, then, indeed, there would be a chance of the phrase art of the people being something more than a mere word. At first sight, indeed, it would seem impossible to make men born under the present system of commerce understand that labour may be a blessing to them, not in the sense in which the phrase is sometimes preached to them by those whose labour is light and easily evaded, not as a necessary task laid by nature on the poor for the benefit of the rich, not as an opiate to dull their sense of right and wrong, to make them sit down quietly under their burdens to the end of time, blessing the squire and his relations. All this they could understand our saying to them easily enough, and sometimes would listen to it, I fear, with at least a show of complacency, if they thought there were anything to be made out of us thereby. But the true doctrine that labour should be a real tangible blessing in itself to the working man, a pleasure even as sleep and strong drink are to him now. This one might think it hard indeed for him to understand, so different as it is to anything which he has found labour to be. Nevertheless, though most men's work is only born as a necessary evil like sickness, my experience as far as it goes is, that whether it be from a certain sacredness in handiwork which does cleave to it even under the worst circumstances, or whether it be that the poor man who is driven by necessity to deal with things which are terribly real, when he thinks at all on such matters, thinks less conventionally than the rich. Whatever it may be, my experience so far is that the working man finds it easier to understand the doctrine of the claim of labour to pleasure in the work itself than the rich or well-to-do man does. Apart from any trivial words of my own, I have been surprised to find, for instance, such a hearty feeling toward John Ruskin among working-class audiences. They can see the profit in him rather than the fantastic rhetorician, as more superfine audiences do. That is a good omen, I think, for the education of times to come. But we, who somehow are so tainted by cynicism, because of our helplessness in the ugly world which surrounds and presses on us, Cannot we somehow raise our own hopes, at least to the point of thinking that what hope glimmers on the millions of the slaves of commerce is something better than a mere delusion, the false dawn of a cloudy midnight, with which tis only the moon that struggles? Let us call to mind that there yet remain monuments in the world which show us that all human labour was not always a grief and a burden to men. Let us think of the mighty and lovely architecture, for instance, of medieval Europe. 
of the buildings raised before commerce had put the coping stone on the edifice of tyranny by the discovery that fancy, imagination, sentiment, the joy of creation and the hope of fair fame are marketable articles, too precious to be allowed to men who have not the money to buy them, to mere handicraftsmen and day labourers. Let us remember there was a time when men had pleasure in their daily work, but yet, as to other matters, hoped for light and freedom even as they do now. Their dim hope grew brighter, and they watched its seeming fulfilment drawing nearer and nearer, and gazed so eagerly on it that they did not note how the ever-watchful foe oppression had changed his shape and was stealing from them what they had already gained in the days when the light of their new hope was but a feeble glimmer. So they lost the old gain, and for lack of it the new gain was changed and spoiled for them into something not much better than loss.'